web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are a first time listener. And if you are, we will for the next hour be taking people's questions that they have as they are studying God's word. Maybe they're looking for understanding or how to apply a text or biblical counsel as it relates to some issue of life or ministry. And so if we can be of help, uh, you have a couple of ways in which to reach us. You can call us uh, locally here at 843 uh, it's an 843 inter- interchange, uh, 525-1859. We have a toll-free number. It's the 877-EXCHANGE, and it's uh, 877-STS for Search the Scriptures, 7478, or uh, 877-WAGP980. Any of those numbers will get you through. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible Line. TBL at WAGP.net. And when you call, you can go on the air live if you prefer. We do give live callers preference, or you can simply dictate your question to uh, Deb, who's taking questions today, and she'll shoot us the question right here into the studio. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. We've been out for a couple of weeks, and the questions have piled up, so let's get to them. Carrie from Beaufort writes Hello, Dr. Brogy. I've been a believer my entire life and have a pretty solid understanding of the scriptures, but I've been in conversation with someone who's not a believer and who brings up such arguments as not being allowed to wear clothing of two materials or no eating shellfish and even some New Testament teaching like women should remain silent in the church, cover their heads, etc. Clearly, this isn't someone who is open to the heart of the gospel. Am I just throwing my pearls to swine by continuing the discussion? If not, how do I answer those things she brings up? Would you please explain, again, which Old Testament laws Jesus fulfilled and no longer apply, and which ones do still apply, and why? At what point do we say, well, those were cultural things of the day, and then not have the argument apply to things such as gay marriage, women at the pulpit not okay, versus other women's ministries being okay, and so on? Well, that's a great question, and really a lot of questions. Uh, But I will say this to begin with, that the Bible would make a distinction between God's ceremonial law and God's moral eternal law. And most of us, if we just stop and think for a moment, yeah, I can see that. Now, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the way he deals with his people at different times in human history does change. For instance, during the millennial reign of the Messiah, when Jesus comes back to the earth and rules for a thousand years, we will actually meet believers on the seventh day of the week. On Saturday, we will uh, celebrate the Sabbath again. Right now in the church age, because God is building a church, he highlights the first day of the week as the time in which God's people should meet. So God never changes, but sometimes the way he deals with his people. Take the sacrificial system, for instance. 
I doubt anyone listening to me last week attempted to bring some kind of an animal sacrifice to church. Why? Because uh, the Bible teaches in Hebrews 10, the once and for all sacrifice has made a complete eternal payment for our sin. And therefore, there is no need any longer to bring various sacrifices. And if you study the various sacrifices and there's a lot, you know, thank offerings and so forth, um, they symbolize different aspects of the Messiah's ministry, that when the Messiah would come, he would fulfill certain things. Uh, Certainly there are ceremonial laws, like you mentioned, for instance, uh, the exclusion of certain foods. And God speaks of that in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. And those are two chapters that uh, tell the Jewish people what's prohibitive to eat. And so uh, why was that? Well, you know, some would say for health reasons, and, and certainly some of the scavengers that are mentioned there, if you eat too many of them, probably not all that good for you. But that doesn't seem to be the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that God distinguished his people under the old covenant externally, where God distinguishes his people under the new covenant today internally. And so, for instance, in Mark chapter seven, uh, let me just turn there and remember a good way to understand what applies today and what is, you know, ceremonial and what is uh, moral and eternal is to look into the New Testament. So, for instance, in Mark chapter seven, uh, Jesus makes this statement that he declares all meats clean. Um, So if all meats have been declared clean, then I don't have to be overly concerned over what can I eat and what can I not eat. Uh, Let me read that text. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So that's um, Mark chapter seven, verse 19. So what does that mean? It means I can eat any kind of uh, food that I want, shellfish, I could eat uh, pork and, and so forth. There are some exclusions though that God gives when it comes to causing a brother to stumble when you come to Romans chapter 14. And in fact, you might want to listen to my series on Romans, but specifically the 14th chapter, because I go through some of the very illustrations that you raise here. And we make that distinction between the ceremonial and moral law and what drives that in terms of New Testament theology. I could spend an hour just on this question, but, um, he tells us here, um, in Romans 14, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, which we should, because that's what Jesus said. But he was weak, eats vegetables only. Uh, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Uh, He'll say a little bit later in this chapter, in verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Paul then says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food, him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing and all meats and different 
shellfish and so forth, they're all good things, not just in terms of flavor, but in terms of God's perspective. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So his point is, is that within the New Covenant Church, you would have a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ. And so if you had grown up Jewish your whole life and your whole life had been told, look, you don't eat pork, you don't eat uh, shellfish, um, you can't eat rabbit and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden in the New Covenant Church, you have people who have no problems doing those things. There was potentially an opportunity for contention and division. And so Paul's point is that there are some who are strong in faith, who understand fully what God says, and and some might be Jewish who are strong in faith. For Gentiles, they're just glad that, that, that it's true, that they can eat whatever they want. And you want to help the person who's weak in faith and not simply please yourself. So there is some restrictions in the 14th chapter of Romans that if we cause a brother to stumble, and you could certainly apply that in a multiplicity of ways, but if uh, by your freedom, someone else becomes contentious towards you, then you in, in gets really upset with you because they think you're breaking the moral law of God then you haven't promoted unity in the body of Christ, but you've promoted division in the body of Christ. And you don't want to promote division. God's plan is that there be unity in the church. So I hope that will help you as you answer, as I answer your question. The other thing that I would say to you would be from the book of Acts, the 10th chapter. Let me just turn there for a moment to Acts chapter 10. And again, God never illustrates anything with error. And so if you remember in the 10th chapter, there was a man by the name of Cornelius or maybe more appropriately Cornelius uh, as the Brits will pronounce his name. Uh, Here is a man who was not saved, but he was definitely open to uh, spiritual truth. And while he is uh, being directed by an angel of God to go to a particular place that he might hear the good news, God is giving Peter at the noon hour when, you know, he's hungry, this vision about food. And it's an amazing vision. It says on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's noon. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he could smell it down below. He fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. So he has this vision and he sees all kinds of four-footed animals, animals that would be considered unclean. Now, the purpose was not simply to tell Peter what he could eat. Peter already understood that Jesus had lifted this. The purpose of the vision that God uses was to help him to understand the way he was to view Gentiles, not as an unclean people, but as equal uh, uh, recipients uh, of salvation in the body of Christ. And of course, that's what happens. He goes and 
He preaches to Cornelius in his house and they hear the gospel and what blows them away as when he reports in the 11th chapter to the leaders in Jerusalem, what blows his mind is that they received the Holy Spirit in the exact same way. They always believed Gentiles could be saved, but what they didn't understand is that Gentiles would be on an equal footing with Jews in the church, that God, as Paul will say in Ephesians 2, has removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek, and he has made us one. So my point in saying this is God never uses error to illustrate truth. And so he wouldn't give an erroneous illustration where in the illustration he says you can eat anything um, if that were not true. So the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And so this person who writes, uh, it's a great question, but those are some of the ways you want to think as you put this together. But I would point her to my sermon in Romans 14. I think that would be of great help to her. 843-525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, uh, yeah. Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I know there's been a lot of uh, questions over the years, and I know you've spoken on it, about uh, the return of Christ, uh, more specifically the rapture or the catching up. And I know that uh, the last days have been in effect since, uh, I guess, Pentecost or since Christ's ascension. Uh, but I know on a couple occasions you had mentioned that you thought we might be in the last of the last days. Um, with all this stuff going on now uh, with the medical advances, uh, so-called transgender actually being able to... Um, change their plumbing, so to speak. Uh, some, come, some would say, well, we're modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah, but I've heard others say that Sodom and Gomorrah was probably more wicked than this, but they didn't have these moder- modern advancements. And it makes me think of, I think, somewhere in Scripture where it says, they will create new ways to do evil. And I am seeing that, whether it's in violence or sexual uh, perversity. And I was just wondering, does that sort of uh, affirm your belief that we are in the uh, last of the last days, or, or could you expand on that? Yeah, obviously, uh, you, you make a good point that the last days began on the day of Pentecost. How do we know that? Because Peter tells us in Acts 2, when these 120 come out of the upper room and they speak in languages and not only languages, but dialects within a language, uh, and they have a, a miracle that takes place through them. Uh, some people mock them and say they're drunk. And Peter says, it's not even the time of day when people get drunk. And he says, no, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. So there you have a clear affirmation that Peter believed that what took place in the day of Pentecost was a fulfillment of what would happen in the last days. Now, there is another term in the Bible that is called latter days or latter times. Both are found in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. And that's a distinctly different term. That's a term that relates to the second coming. And so uh, clearly, and we're just starting the book of Revelation, a verse-by-verse exposition. We've only gotten through the first eight verses in the last two weeks, and we'll be there for a while, and we will deal with these issues in great depth, and we'll let Scripture speak for itself. 
because there are some Christians who, who don't understand the timing, I think, of when the church will be caught up. I think we will be caught up before the great tribulation. One of the reasons is because the New Testament teaches the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that the return of Jesus is imminent, that it could take place at any moment. Uh, it could have taken place in Peter's day. It could have taken place in Paul's day. In fact, they live with the expectation that it would. Were they right for doing that? Absolutely, because it's our blessed hope. It's our, <laughs> excuse me, our blessed guarantee that God promised his people that we should be looking forward to. And they understood, too, that prophetically nothing has ever needed to take place for the church to be caught up. There's never been a single prophecy since the day of Pentecost that has needed to be fulfilled for the church to be raptured. The rapture has always been imminent. If, um, if the Antichrist has to come, if the Great Tribulation has to happen, um, then obviously uh, it couldn't happen today. And there are some Christians who think we will go through the tribulation and that the second coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church is one simultaneous event. The problem with that is they have huge difficulties in plainly interpreting the rest of Revelation. For instance, if at the rapture uh, we go up, we are given glorified bodies, and then we come straight back to the earth to rule and to reign with Jesus for a thousand years, then who are the people at the end of the thousand years who are going to rebel against God's Messiah? If in a resurrection body we are like him, because we will see him as he is, and uh, we receive a glorified body, as the last two verses of Philippians 3 tells us, then we will not have the capacity to sin. So how will people be able to sin and rebel against the living Christ who's ruling on the earth? So some recognize that and they say, well, Messiah is not really going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. That's just a number of fullness. That's just a spiritual truth, but it's not actually taught in the Bible um, no, it is taught. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait a savior who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his own. We're not going to be able to sin yet. There are people who rebel at the end of the thousand year reign. So what a lot of people do, they're uh, millennialists. They say there is no thousand year reign that when Jesus comes back, we're all caught up. Uh, we, we go into the eternal state. There's no rule and reign of Jesus upon the earth. The problem with that is you have to spiritualize so much of what's said in the revelation. So for them, there is no coming tribulation period. There is no coming antichrist. Actually, they say it already took place. We studied this in the first sermon. We looked at four major views of how to interpret revelation. One is called the preterist view. Praetor is the Latin word for past. And they say all the book of revelation with the exception of Revelation 19, where Jesus comes again, has already been fulfilled. Well, that's nonsense because, again, you have to spiritualize the text. You have to really distort the meanings of what not only you find in the Revelation, but you have to distort the meanings of what Jesus gave in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 when he describes his return from heaven. So this is what you will find as a general rule. The, the less literal, plainly, and I say literal, and I, I put that in quotations, because, you know, people attack the literal interpretation of the Bible. You know, if you're uh, confronted by an unbeliever and you make some statement um, 
about what you think to be true. And they'll say, well, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? What, what they're really asking is, you don't believe this is actually applicable for today, do you? I mean, uh, when, when Paul talks about, you know, a man to lie with a man, you don't believe that literally. And I'd say, yes, I do. I believe it as literally as I'm literally believing the question that you are asking me. Language was given to communicate, but we do not discount as literalists that there are figures of speech that God gives. And so many of those figures are interpreted within the Bible itself. And so when the Bible describes Satan as a dragon, he's not a literal dragon. Well, some would say, well, that's symbolic. There must be no devil. No, there is a real devil. But God uses a symbol there to describe his cruel and ferocious nature. Uh, in the revelation, you, you see this incense ascending to God and that symbol is defined for us as the prayers of the saints ascending into the presence of God. Uh, so once you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe it. And so here's the problem is that the amillennialist, he, um, basically has to spiritualize a lot of the text. He's typically not consistent in the way he interprets the Bible. You see, the amillennialists would not deny that Jesus literally fulfilled the prophecies for the first coming. The only problem is they have to deny a literal interpretation for the second coming. But why would we expect God to apply a different principle of interpretation for the second coming that he applied to the first coming? So how do I know to plainly interpret the Bible in its historical grammatical context. Is that just something that I like to do? No, that's something that God left within the scripture itself. The Bible itself shows us how to interpret the Bible. So like, for instance, when we were studying the book of Daniel and Daniel in the ninth chapter is reading the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, let me just turn there for just a moment, because this would be a good illustration directly from the old Testament. We could look at dozens and dozens of them. And it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the Lord, as the word of the, the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the com completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, of course, told the people uh, and he spoke prophetically before they were ever carried away by the uh, Babylonians, ever before King Nebuchadnezzar came down and, and carried him away, uh, that the length of the um, time in Babylon would be 70 years. You can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 25 and in Jeremiah 29. There's like three references in the prophet Jeremiah. And so Daniel recognizes what year it is. He gives us a date. So he realizes, oh, we're just about there. We're in the 67th year of those 70 years. So we're nearing the end when God promises to take us back uh, to Jerusalem and the captivity will be over. And so how does Daniel interpret a prophecy that Jeremiah gave? Literally. How do the apostles and Jesus interpret the prophecies concerning the Old Testament? Literally. Like um, Jesus believed in a literal kingdom where he would literally rule upon the earth uh, as the Messiah. Uh, when the disciples ask him at the ascension, is this the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? He doesn't say, well, I'm done with Israel. You know, they're, 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 they're past, you know, the church, they're the new Israel. 
No, he says it's not for you to know the times and the epics. If, if indeed um, there was no literal kingdom, that would have been a perfect time for Jesus to have denied it. But even think of the um, prophecies in reference to the first coming. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, I just turned here to Luke 1. Let's see, here it is in verse 32. He's speaking, he says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua. Uh, That means Jehovah saves, Yahweh saves, or in Greek, Jesus. He, Jesus, will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now that piece of prophecy there was not fulfilled in the first coming. Uh, Mary was told that he is going to take the throne of David and rule over the house of Jacob over Israel, but it didn't happen. Why? Because it's going to happen at the second coming. And so I say all that to say this, the second coming of Christ is a prophecy driven event. There are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled for the rapture. With that said, there are certainly some major indicators, even in our lifetime, that have been fulfilled in reference to the second coming. For instance, there's a lot of prophecy that has to be fulfilled in the final seven years of time in a physical place that we call Israel and in a particular city that we call Jerusalem. Well, listen, when the Jews were... Uh, driven out of the land when Titus Vespucian came in at 70 AD. And then the final thing was, you know, they were all cast out of the land by the, uh, you know, 30 years later. I mean, they were done as a nation. They no longer existed as a nation. And so I've said it many times, but when pastors like myself um, 80 years ago, a hundred years ago, spoke about Israel being a nation back in the land because the prophet Ezekiel said that in the latter times in the latter days, God would regather his people into the land. This is a prophecy that we fulfilled. We've seen fulfilled in our time. The Jewish people have been brought back into the land. God used the evil of Hitler and sometimes the inattention of compassionate people during the second world war to bring about a fulfillment of prophecy. When the Jewish people came in boatloads to the U S shore, we turned them away and they had no choice, but to go back to Germany where many of them were slaughtered. Some of them though made their way to Israel. And so God made a way to gather Jewish people initially in Israel in, in 1949, when Israel becomes a nation, There's 600,000 people living in Israel. There's tens of millions of Arabs all around them. But God supernaturally delivers the people of Israel where they become a nation and they become a state. Now there's approximately 7 million Jewish people living in Israel. Now people differ on the numbers. Uh, Some would say there's only 12 million Jews in the world. The high number is 15 million. But look, whether there's 12 or 15 million, the fact that 7 million are already back in the land is phenomenal. 
because God teaches in his word that at the end of time, they would be back in the land. They have statehood. They are a nation. God is gathering them. He continues to gather them. Anti-Semitism grows in France. A lot of people, for instance, are just uh, shocked with all the Jewish people who are leaving. Uh, But why should they stay? Who wants to live in a country where you're hated and despised? And so they're emptying out in this is hurting the French economy because the Jewish people are very industrious and they know how to make money. And God's blessed them with that. And they're going back to Israel. The former Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s. And several million Jews left the former Soviet Union and have come to Israel. This is the sovereign God orchestrating the circumstances. So when you see prophecy, you see the rise of of Russia as a major world power. They are one of the specific nations that are prophesied that will come against Israel, as will Syria, as will Iran. These are nations named in the Bible that are going to come against Israel. Last week in the parade that they had uh, in the streets of Iran, they had a huge missile and written on the outside, death to Israel. That's written on the outside of the missile. They absolutely hate it. Who, who Who do we know? Uh, based on our own secretary of state just a few days ago is funding and supplying even with uh, manpower uh, people in Syria to go against Israel, the Iranians. This is prophecy. This is what God says is going to happen. So when you see prophecy being fulfilled in our day and, and you mentioned some of the moral issues and there are moral issues. There are moral issues like homosexuality. Uh, because the coming of the son of man will be like the days of Lot. There will be gross immorality. Why? Because the coming of the son of man will be like the days of Noah. So there is a moral climate that is unfolding, not just in America, but wherever you go in the world. And it's not by accident in that while man is free, God said this would happen. So when you put all these things together, and I could go on and speak a lot about Jerusalem right now, but just Jerusalem even of itself, if the clock is Jerusalem, the second hand is, I mean, if the clock is Israel, the second hand is Jerusalem. And the things that are happening prophetically in Jerusalem are huge. And so if anyone even remotely knows their Bibles, their eyes should be wide open that because we're seeing prophecy fulfilled for the second coming, the rapture, which requires no prophecy, is that much closer. After the church is raptured, any remaining prophecy will be fulfilled during the seven plus years that will follow. And we will study this as we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Revelation. So if you don't have a church, I invite you to come this Sunday to Community Bible Church. We have two locations, 638 Paris Island Gateway in Beaufort. We also have a location right on the border of Hilton Head and Bluffton at the Bridge Center. And we meet there at 11 o'clock. Uh, though we may have to go to two services at some point. One of my guys was saying, because they're just so packed in there, we don't have but about 25 seats left. Um, but we also have a, a, a new campus in Graniteville. And if God provides a way, we hope, and, we hope to open a campus somewhere in the greater Savannah area. And so if you uh, have, um, especially Pooler in that area, Nova Place that you can give us or rent to us real cheap, we would definitely be open. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Our next caller would like to know how you balance not being in this world, but yet being salt and light to the unsaved. 
How isolated should we be to still be a positive influence for Christianity while still protecting our families from the evil that is everywhere in this world? Well, you don't have to participate in evil to have an impact amongst the evil in which we find ourselves. So certainly there are choices that God calls us to make. And so I often think of Romans chapter 12 in the opening verses and Paul having spent 11 chapters describing the great mercies of God that he has shown on his people, uh, on the church as well as in, upon Israel and his mercy upon Israel, which is the focus of 9, 10, and 11, show that God is consistent, that as the end of chapter 8 says, he loves us with an everlasting love. Some people might say, well, I, I, I've heard that before. You know, re you repeatedly talked about Israel being loved with an everlasting love, but it seems like you've abandoned Israel. And so he illustrates the principle at the end of chapter eight with Israel in chapter nine, how he elected them in chapter 10, how they rejected him. But in chapter 11, because God does love them with an everlasting love, how he will restore them. And we're seeing at least the early signs of that restoration before there can be a spiritual renewal, there has to be a physical regathering. And so the prophet spoke of both in light of that. He says, therefore, I urge you brethren by the mercies of God, these mercies I've just explained and elaborated on. That's why the therefore is there. You always want to ask when you see the word, therefore, why is it therefore, therefore it's there in light of what he's just said in the prior 11 chapters to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Then he says, don't be conformed to the world. He doesn't say abandon the world. We are commanded to go into the world and to preach the gospel to everyone under creation, but don't be conformed to the world. Now I can tell you right now that you are not going to be a growing Christian unless you're engaging the world, unless you are sharing the gospel to the world, unless you're trying to communicate your faith to the world. If you're not, you're living in disobedience, you're squishing, you're, you're, you're throwing cold water on the fire of the Holy Spirit who wants to fill your heart. Sometimes Christians take a certain amount of pride in the things they're not doing, but they are ignoring the things that they ought to be doing. So the Bible tells us not simply uh, grieve not the spirit. It also tells us not to quench the spirit. And so our minds need to be removed, uh, renewed. That means number one, we got to get our head out of the garbage can. You can't watch and listen to trash and expect to be holy. Uh, you have to put away certain things, but you also have to feed on scripture and be obedient to go. So there's this balance. You know, you've got people like the Amish who hide themselves up in a, you know, a fenced in community, so to speak. And uh, now a lot of them don't even have the gospel anymore, but some definitely do. But that's not God's way. No, God says, go, go and preach the gospel. You cannot be an obedient Christian if you don't go. You said that's what we hire missionaries to do actually not. God's hiring you to do that when he saved you. Literally, it doesn't say go therefore. It says as you go or as you are going, make disciples. And the word disciple there is synonymous with converts. He's not talking about doing discipleship there. Now the principle of discipleship is taught in the New Testament, but not there in the first half of that verse. Go therefore and make converts, not just of the house of Israel where he gave a limited commission earlier in Matthew, but now it's a greater commission. Go to all peoples, all nations, every stripe, every tongue, every tribe, every race. Make disciples. What do you do with these new believers? You baptize them, then you teach them. So if you're not actively engaged in the Great Commission, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you're more likely to uh, 
if anything, when you talk about protecting your family is to raise anemic children who won't be prepared to go out into the world and to live in it and not be off it. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I think someone's hanging on for the phone call. Indeed, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yeah, good morning, Rick. Pastor Brogy. I'm, I'm confused about the issue of uh, Matthew 10.5, separation of the sheep from the goats. Basically, Matthew 10.5, it says, go not into the way. He said the 12 hours, it says, go not into the way of the Gentiles, or in any city of Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then I'm taught in Matthew Matthew twenty five, thirty one through forty six that that uh we're saying that Jesus is Jesus is uh, gonna separate the um sheep from lost the goats. sheep from the Gentiles. Uh-huh. So I, is he separating the lost sheep from the Gentiles or from the Jews? Because I, I didn't think that I didn't think that they were that Matthew was separating the uh, lost All right. sheep from, good, good from the Gentiles. Good question. Good question. So let me see if I can respond. Um, in Matthew 10, these 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them. And he says specifically, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Now the word Gentile is used in a couple different ways in the new Testament. Sometimes it's a word that's synonymous for a pagan. Don't pray like the Gentiles. Some of the new translations say, don't pray like the pagans using, you know, vain repetition. Um, now for the most part in the first century, the Gentiles were the pagans, but the word was also a synonym for a pagan or someone who lived like a pagan. And so, uh, but it's also used ethnically. It's used specifically of someone who's not a descendant of Abraham. He's not a member of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's how it's being used in this context. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. For that matter, do not any enter any city of the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were those who intermarried with the Jews. So if you remember at one time in Israel's history, uh, God divided the kingdom into 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. The 10 northern tribes went up into that area that uh, he met a woman at the well, a place called Samaria. And some of those less than faithful Jews never came back. And uh, they just stayed in that area and they ended up marrying Gentiles. And so you had a mixed breed. Now, God said that you could not marry a Gentile. Why? Because to marry a Gentile was to marry an unbeliever. Now, there are people who marry Gentiles in the Bible. Joseph marries a Gentile. Moses marries a Gentile. But you have to assume based on what God says, these godly men married Gentiles who were converted to Judaism. But when he told them not to intermarry with the peoples in the land, because those were raw pagans and God didn't want his people's hearts to be drawn away. So these Christian, these Jewish people who were in disobedience became Samaritans because they were half Jew and half Gentile. And for the most part, uh, the, the Jews despised them. That's why when they went north, they walked around Samaria and made the trip a lot longer. But the fact that Jesus would walk through Samaria, which John chapter four indicates was absolutely huge. So don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the half Jews in half Gentiles, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came with a kingdom and he was making some promises that Um, go all the way back to the Old Testament that God was going to give the Jews a kingdom that he would rule from and that when the Messiah came, 
the Messiah would rule on David's throne. And by the way, we just read a text from Luke's gospel where the angel Gabriel told that to Mary. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Your son is going to rule on David's throne and he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. That's what the disciples were asking in Acts 1. Is this the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? And again, we have people today who teach replacement theology and they're just wrong. And I don't want to call them heretics. I mean, there are some good people, some that you will listen to on WAGP, who do not believe there's any future for Israel. They're just wrong. And really, they, they misinterpret the scripture when it comes to the people of Israel. But because God had made a promise to Israel, and because God is a promise-keeping God, in the early part of the ministry with the disciples, they didn't go into the way of the Gentiles. It's not because God didn't love them, but God was emphasizing, I'm keeping my promises to Israel. And I promised I'd send Messiah who had come and established a kingdom, but they didn't respond. And so when you get to Matthew 28, Matthew 10, we call that the limited commission. About 400 years ago, someone came up with a new term. It's called the Great Commission. Those aren't words found in the Bible any more than the word Trinity. But it's greater in its scope in that he will say in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, therefore go make disciples of all the nations. In other words, go to the Gentiles now. Go to the Samaritans now. Don't go just to the house of Israel. You don't ignore the Jew. The gospel, as Paul will say in Romans 1, goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, you know, some of them did respond. Obviously, every, every apostle was a Jew. Uh, they were all Jewish men who uh, filled that rank of the 12. Um, in the early church, in the day of Pentecost, everyone converted was a Jew. Peter's second sermon, 5,000 people. Uh, everyone who responds, uh, 5,000 heads of household, are Jews. So you've got, you know, somewhere around 30,000 Jews in Jerusalem who are believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Um, at Matthew chapter 25, that's in a different event. And this is where I think peoples will be really helped if they study Revelation with us, because we'll deal with these issues in their context. Matthew 25 takes place after Matthew 24 obviously, but understand the event that takes place in Matthew 24, the second coming of Jesus to the earth. And when he comes, he is going to separate the sheep from the goat and the sheep will represent believers. Who are the believers? Well, the sheep, the term is used of Jewish believers and it's used of Gentile believers. And so there will be Jews and Gentiles who will come to faith during the seven year tribulation period. One of the focuses of the great tribulation period is to bring Israel to faith. And God is going to accomplish that. Israel is going to believe. They are going to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And um, as will a, a countless number of Gentiles that John likens in Revelation 7 to the sand of the seashore. There's so many. Uh, if you've been to the beach lately and you just pick up a handful of sand, I dare you to count them. Uh, you won't finish one hand before you leave. It's almost impossible. That's what John likens the multitude of people who get saved during the time of the great tribulation period. All the lost at the end of the tribulation period, they are goats. And so in Matthew, he is separating the sheep, the believers from the goats. And that happens at the end of the seven-year period. 
Uh, it will take place in the Kidron Valley. Uh, the prophet Joel speaks of it, that great hour of decision that is going to take place. It's still in the future. So uh, th- there's a lot of theology behind this. And this is why, you know, it's really unfortunate that we live in a day when a lot of pastors won't speak on Bible prophecy. And, and yet, you know, approximately a third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And a huge portion of that third is yet to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled at the second coming of Messiah. And so if you're committed, like Paul was when he told the Ephesian elders to preach the whole counsel of God, you cannot ignore a Bible prophecy and just say, well, there's just one event, the second coming. Oh, God gives us a whole lot more than just that. And so we are going to be studying this as we work through the revelation. I know there are people who listen in other states and through the internet and uh, every week the uh, programs after they are preached, the programs, the sermons are put at uh, our community Bible church website and at search the scriptures as well. If you get the phone app, search the scriptures dot org phone app at the app store, you can listen to them. A lot of people use that phone app. Uh, Someone uh, wrote in a question this morning uh, and they discovered the Bible line by the search the scriptures phone app. And, you know, our websites are linked together and they didn't even know they had this venue. So the phone app is a great tool and especially for younger people, because more and more of them listen to things through their phone rather than say through straight radio. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to him. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Um, Reading through uh, first Kings today, I'm reading about Solomon and it, it doesn't cease to amaze me that here is a man that God endowed with wisdom that no other man on earth ever had, and that he told him, as long as you walk in my ways and follow my ordinances, that he would be blessed, and there would never be anyone from King David's family that was not seated on the throne of Israel. And yet the man takes 700 wives and 300 concubines with all that wisdom and knowing what God said, and they turned his heart away. But on the backside of that, it still amazes me how much... God loved King David that for his sake, he still left another remnant on the throne. I just wondered if you could expand on that. Well, it's a good question. And obviously the Lord is pleased when Solomon asked God, not for wealth or other things, but for wisdom. And so he, the scripture says in first Kings ten twenty three. so King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And uh, of course, Jesus quotes the queen of Sheba. Um, She walks to the ends of the earth to find out and to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But there came a point in his life when he turns away from God and he loved many foreign women. And God, again, repeatedly spoke uh, against this. When it says he had 700 wives, uh, you know, I don't think there was 700 women that he went to bed with, um, I understand a lot of these, um, marriages were marriages that were politically arranged. And you'll see illustrations of this in first and second Kings where someone will marry someone for political purposes. You know, if the, if your next door neighbor, uh, is against you, 
And yet, if uh, your son marries that king's daughter, then you might as well um, pull that off. At least you'll be at peace with the kingdom next door to you. So there's a lot of uh, that that went on. But nonetheless, he, he did have a lot of women. And it was very unfortunate. And his heart was drawn away from the living God. But he didn't stay there. At the end of his life, Solomon will give you a book like the book of Ecclesiastes. And he learned from it. Now, I understand today, obviously, Solomon would not be considered a believer. Uh, Just like some other great men who had more than one wife. King David had four. He wouldn't be considered a believer under New Covenant standards. Why? Because a person who's a bigamist or a polygamist is considered an unbeliever. They are living a lifestyle of adultery. And adulterers have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But it's too a reminder to me of the greatness of the new covenant that God had promised Israel that we see a partial fulfillment in, in the church today. And we, we should be grateful. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'm reading Ezekiel 36 and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and turn your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It's just a reminder of how hard the human heart is apart from a new birth. But even unbelievers today, in some respects, experience a benefit that the people who lived in the Old Testament era who were totally lost didn't experience. So in this age, post-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit convicts the world, world means world, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is viewed, as we will see coming up on one of our Wednesday night studies on pneumatology, as the restrainer in the world. He's holding back sin. You didn't see that same ministry described in the Old Testament. These are all new covenant benefits. So even the way some unbelievers live is different. But what God does tell us is that his restraining power is going to be lifted. How is that going to happen? Well, number one, he restrains sin through the church today. What is the final era of God's people look like? Lukewarm. The final church is a lukewarm church. And so does a lukewarm Christian, when he goes to work, have an influence on the pagans around him? Not at all. He gives them more freedom to do what they want to do. In fact, he gives them an excuse to do what they want to do. And so that restraining influence through the church is weakened. And this is one of the reasons I think we're seeing more and more evil in the culture. You know, people think the solutions are political. They're not political. The solutions are moral. They're spiritual. And unfortunately today, the average Christian in America no longer even shares the gospel. The average Christian in America doesn't even try to invite someone to his church. We, we've stopped winning people to Jesus. And the classic picture of this is in the largest evangelical Protestant denomination. And they're broken over at the leadership because you see the baptisms just go down from tens of thousands to, to thousands. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dramatic change that is happening. And then when the church is raptured and every vestige of good is removed, hell's going to have a holiday. You're going to see evil like you've never seen it before. So when I read of guys like Solomon, it's just a picture to me of the hardness of heart. 
but it's also a reminder to me of the blessing of this age that we live in the church age that began on Pentecost and that as a believer as well that I can experience a intimacy with God that no old covenant saint even began to know and that's why Jesus said no one born of John there was never a man born of of a woman greater than John but the person who's even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John why because John died before becoming a, a recipient of the new covenant he died before Pentecost. And so we are blessed not only in terms of our intimacy with God, but also the influence the church has on the world. Uh, this world would be a lot uglier if there were no Christians here. And so we're, 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 we're doing very foolish things to smush Christianity as a nation. All right, very good. Our next caller is a Christian, but she finds that sometimes days can go by without her actually praying and having time with God. Her schedule is very hectic, and she's wondering if you could give some advice on when and how you find time to seek God with your busy schedule. You just have to make it a priority. Look, you you will do the things that are important to you. This person who's written this question in today, I assume this person ate breakfast this morning. Why? Because it was important to them. I assume they're probably going to have at least one or two more meals today. Why? Because it's important to them. Some of these people, it's important for them to go out and get exercise and they want to stay in condition. You will do what is important to you. And if indeed, you know, spending time with God is not important to you, then you need to begin by asking God to make it important to you. And you need to understand why it needs to be so critically important to you. And we cover this in the discovery class. It's uh, labeled as the back to basics series online at searchthescriptures.org. But one of the things that we discuss in the discovery class is the need to spend time alone with God in prayer and in Bible reading and meditating on the word of God. If you don't do that, your life is going to be a loss. The years will turn into decades. And before you know it, you will be an old person and you will live life, but you will have not lived it well because you cannot live life well unless you spend time alone with God. So if it's important to you, you will do it. Look, even my own quiet time, I do things in my quiet time that have zero to do with uh, preparing a sermon. You know, I'll spend 20, 25, 30 hours some weeks preparing a single message of the word of God. And I'm in scripture and pouring over it and in the original languages. But that's no substitute for my own personal time with God, where I'm just studying a, a passage of scripture for my own personal edification. Now, God may use it in the people that he's called me to shepherd, it, but it's for me. And you need to see that that's important for you. And if you're a mom, you, that might be when the kids are taking a nap. It might be at uh, 10 o'clock at night when the house is quiet. I don't know what's good for you. It might be before you eat breakfast. But you got to figure out, how do I make this a priority? Well, another hour has slipped away. A lot of questions came in we didn't even get to. But that's all right. Our goal is not to rush through them. People sending questions to searchthescriptures.org. Be patient. We'll get to them sooner or later, and then you'll be emailed. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. Mm -hmm. 